The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. All right, it's great to be with you. Worship the Lord together today. Especially excited to share this word together. But let's pray and ask God for help. Uh, Father, there's things you want to show us in your word this morning, but we need your help to see it. Lord, um, we're distracted by so many things, burdened by so many things. We come with presuppositions, concerns. We ask you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would just give us the ability to center in, to focus on your word. I pray, Lord, you'd help me to teach this, please, faithfully, clearly. Uh, that we could all see and savor what you want us to see and savor about our Lord. And that in seeing him and tasting his goodness, Lord, you would thrill us, inspire us, enable us to live faithfully for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Can you see Jesus? And when you look, what do you see? We're continuing our study through the book of Hebrews, and the author continually insists that desperately you need to see Jesus, and you need to keep seeing him. You know, that language might sound strange to us in a way, because, you know, do you see Jesus literally, physically? Well, of course not. He's not here walking around. So how do you see him? What does the author mean? We'll just consider a couple of these references. Hebrews 2.1, the author says, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard. So there's a message. you got to listen to it and pay close attention to it. And then Hebrews 2.9, same chapter. But we, what? We see him. Hebrews 3.1, consider Jesus. There's ideas about Jesus, who he is and what he's done, what he's going to do. Hebrews 12, 2, what does it say? Looking to Jesus. So how do you see, how do you see Jesus? Well, it starts with pondering the message of Jesus' apostles. And then you add to that genuine faith where you believe both that this message is true and that it involves you personally. When you see that, Well, it's like your heart is seeing Jesus, and you've got to see, and you've got to keep seeing. Uh, We remember that Hebrews was written to a group of marginalized Jewish Christians facing hard times, very hard times, and in their discouragement, they are tempted to drift from Jesus or even abandon him completely. They're tempted to leave the gospel for disobedience, leave the gospel for even religion, Leave Jesus for the law, leave gospel for comfort. All these temptations, distractions, to not look at Jesus anymore. And so, this is so important because we face and will face the same challenges, the same influences, the same distractions, the same difficulties, and we will be influenced to leave Jesus, deny Jesus, forget Jesus. And so, as the author of Hebrews is going to say over and over again to his author, he's saying it to us. 
eyes on Christ. You've got to see Jesus. You've got to see him again. You've got to keep seeing him. So in this section of chapter 2, where we are today, 10 to 18, the author wants his recipients to see what they most need to see about Jesus' incarnation. Specifically, his audience is supposed to see further into what it meant that Jesus took on human flesh. Supposed to ponder these things in depth. We're supposed to remember what it means that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, took on human nature. He was, he was a baby in a womb. He was born. He grew. He learned obedience. He suffered. He's been lonely. He's faced trials. He's been tempted. He's even been tortured and murdered on a cross. Why? That's what you need to see. That's what you need to see this morning. And so, honestly, I think we can say the Holy Spirit of God wants to show you Four things about Jesus' incarnation so that you can further and more deeply see Jesus. And really part of this seeing is savoring. Part of this seeing is savoring. You know what the word savor means? It's uh, slow down a little bit, right? Hey, you got to taste this, right? And you, you put it in your mouth and you're not just... You're not just chomping it down. You're you're giving it some time. You're giving it some thought to taste this thing. And supposedly when you savor something, you're you're going, oh, that's good. That's really good. And so the purpose, God's purpose of this text is that we would see and personally savor the delicious beauty of Jesus' incarnation. And this is so important because seeing Jesus in this way is the only way you're going to come to him. And seeing Jesus in this way is the only way you're going to stay with him. You've got to see Jesus. So there's four things we need to see about the incarnation in our passage. Why did Jesus come like this? We're going to see the source of the incarnation. We're going to see the solidarity of the incarnation. We're going to see the salvation of the incarnation and fourth, the service of the incarnation. The source, the solidarity, the salvation, the service. And Lord willing, we will see and savor. And as we see and savor, if you're not a Christian, you will come. And if you are a Christian, you will stay. No matter the cost, because you've seen Jesus. So let's look at the source Just a little bit of background. Last week, we looked at the beginning of this chapter. We thought together about why some people who profess faith in Jesus Christ end up believing him. Then we saw some powerful reasons the author gives us to stay with Christ, no matter the cost. Remember this this group of people, some of them have lost their property for being Christians. they're, They're being persecuted for being Christians. Powerful reasons to stay. The third reason we saw last week was that in Christ you receive the lavish grace of God. 
So, so Christ is just the doorway to grace. Without Christ, you don't get any of God's covenant grace. With Christ, you get all of God's covenant grace. It's so extreme. In Christ, we find grace. What is grace? Grace is the love and blessing of God freely given to undeserving people. The love and blessing of God freely given. You don't deserve this. To undeserving people. And that grace comes in Christ. And so just to to get context for our passage this morning, look at Hebrews 2, verse 9. The author says, We see him who for a little while is made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Did you see that last phrase there? By the grace of God, he might taste death. It was God's intention that Jesus would taste death, and the source of that intention was what? The grace of God. So in our passage today, the author is further unpacking this idea of how you are to see the grace of God in the incarnation and death of Jesus Christ. So you should just be hearing and receiving and savoring the grace of God for you as you trust in Jesus. And the the author has to argue this. If you remember, in the first century, the cross was scandalous, right? Nowadays, you watch sports and what's everybody wearing, right? Every other person has a cross. Crosses are everywhere, Uh, it's totally lost the stigma. People wear them when they don't even know what it means. People are not wearing crosses in the first century. No way. Uh, uh, For Jewish culture and Greco-Roman culture, the cross was the ultimate stigma of the despised loser. Shame. Rejection. You don't want to look at it. You don't want to think about it. That person is obviously... Garbage. It's, it's scandalous. And especially religious Jews, they, the idea of a crucified Messiah, no way, right? And doesn't Paul refer to this? Look what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 1.22. He's talking about proclaiming the gospel, and he says, Jews demand signs, and Greeks, seeks, Greeks seek wisdom. Look at verse 23. May this always be true of me, of us, of God's church. But we preach, what do we preach? Christ crucified. Messiah, promised king, answered all of God's promises. Crucified, murdered, put to shame, treated like filth. That's what we preach. And that is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles are thinking, no way. The Jews say, no way. God's promised king could not die like that. Gentiles go, ha, it's laughable and gross. It's a pitiful failure. It's a sad joke. You're not going to follow or worship that person. And so you remember, if it's true, that the recipients of this letter are Jewish Christians. Very real possibility that they have a tendency to be kind of embarrassed or ashamed of the cross. To be embarrassed or ashamed of the cross. And so the author of Hebrews here is insisting in this passage, this thing that you are tempted to be embarrassed about, 
the cross, this is anything but an embarrassment. This, this is not an accident. This is not God making the best of a bad situation. This is not, oh no, we got crucified, what now? Maybe we can make something of it. Oh no, this was God's plan from the beginning to bring you to glory. This is not an embarrassment. This is a boast. This is the boast. It's the perfect plan of God himself. You see, the author of Hebrews says, it was fitting. It was fitting. That's verse 10. For it was fitting. What does fitting mean? Let's just walk through this verse. Fitting means it's perfectly appropriate. Fitting means if you knew all the details and all the context, of course this is the choice you would make. Fitting means this is done with precision according to a brilliant plan. This is perfect. This is the way. It was fitting. What was fitting? It was fitting that Jesus would be incarnated into human flesh and suffer. That's what was fitting. It was fitting that the Son of God would take on human, pl- human flesh so that he could be hurtable and killable. Who decided that was fitting? Have you ever heard people say, well, I could never believe in a God who whatever, fill in the blank. It's always, uh, it's always entertaining to hear human beings tell other human beings what God could or could not do. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce in his commentary is really good on this section. He writes, when people talk like that, you're not really learning any new information about God. You're just learning new information about the person who's talking. And if you think, well, God would never... Well, the only way you can know what God would and should and did do is to look at what he's done and what he says he will do. And God said it was fitting that this is the way he brings many sons and daughters to glory. Who decided it was fitting? Well, in context, it was fitting that he, by whom and, for whom and by whom all things exist, is talking about the Father, it's the Father in heaven. He's the one who, th- who thought this was fitting. And th- think about that phrase, the one for whom and by whom all things exist. What level is that? He's the creator of all things. He's in control. He has a purpose. Moreover, all things exist for him, which means He's not only writing the story and enabling the story, he's making it about his own glory. And he's the one who decided this was fitting. It's not an accident. It's not embarrassment. It's God's plan. And what is God's purpose in this plan? Don't you love this phrase? God has decided in this plan, this fitting plan, to bring, as the text says, many sons to glory. And here's where you should all go. Oh. If you if you could if you could see it right, if I could see it right, here's where we would all think, "Oh, really? That's what you should think." God is going to take rebellious, broken, sinful, lost, hopeless people 
like me, like you. He's going to adopt them as children and inheritors. So he's going to make sinful, lost, broken, undeserving people into daughters and sons, make them inheritors, take them out of the hole of sin and death, and bring them to what? Glory. The heavy, marvelous, majestic beauty of God himself. They will see him, they will enjoy him in his new creation forever. That's what this is about. And so the best way, and therefore the only way, the fitting way, is for God to send the perfect captain, his son. And hear that phrase. It's fitting that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. This is an important word here, this word founder. And if you read other translations of the New Testament, you'll see that the translators aren't quite sure how to put this word because you're going to get a lot of different varieties on what to do with this word. So the Greek for this is archagos, which means arch leader, the ultimate leader. And so sometimes it's translated the author. So he wrote it. Uh, Sometimes it's translated forerunner. So he went first so that we could follow. Or, or trailblazer, or pioneer, or champion. He's the one who fought the battle we couldn't fight to win it. Or the word I'm going to go with for our sermon, captain. Sometimes the translation is captain. And the captain, I don't know, for the, who goes out and, and flips the coin at the, at the game or whatever. It's the captain. It's the idea is the captain is one of the team, but he represents the team. And he takes the team where it needs to go. Obviously, this word is so much bigger than just captain but it's it's he goes first he paves the way he becomes like you to come get you to be with you to take you somewhere else that's who he is and so he says it's fitting god thought it was fitting that we would have a captain i love that he knew you needed one We needed one, the captain who becomes like us, to be with us, to come get us, to take us where we need to go. And so it was fitting that this captain or this founder of their salvation would be made perfect through suffering. Now, how many of you struggle with this part? Because if if you've been paying attention, Jesus is the eternal son of God, and then you just heard these words, make Jesus perfect, and part of your brain went, Hold on. He's already perfect. What is this talk of making him perfect? Well, we we have to realize often, often, the author of Hebrews is speaking from the perspective of Jesus' incarnation. Almost always. And so we're not talking about moral perfection. As as we're going to see over and over again, the author of Hebrews believes Jesus never sinned. We're not talking about moral perfection. We're not talking about the divine perfection of his divine nature. We, we've already heard what the author of Hebrews thinks about that. We saw it in chapter 1. He's completely, truly, absolutely divine in his eternal divine nature as the eternal son of God. What we're talking about here is what makes this kind of captain perfect to save you? What makes him fitting to come 
and get you and be with you and grab you so that he can take you. What makes him perfect for that? And the thing that makes him perfect for that is that he has to walk in our shoes. He has to endure real suffering faithfully as a real human just like you. To be your captain, he has to be just like you in every way except without sin. This is the way God brings many sons and daughters to glory. It's through the captain who is perfect in his captaincy. In that, he became just like you, and he suffered with you, and he suffered for you. It's amazing. So there's something to see here and to, save, and to savor. Verse 11, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. So think of three parties. First of all, let's think about this word sanctified. What's it mean to be sanctified? Well, in Hebrews, that's like, that stands for the entirety of your salvation. You are precious to God. You've been made clean by God. You've been brought near to God. You've been set apart for God. It's this whole picture of your salvation. And so then who's the one who sanctifies? Who accomplished that? Well, in Hebrews, it's plain. Hebrews 13, 12. Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So the sanctifier is Jesus. Sanctified you through his life, his death, his resurrection. Who are the sanctified? It's those who believe. It's God's people. In the illustrations used here, it's God's children. And then this wonderful phrase, he who sanctifies Jesus, those who are sanctified, God's children, they all have one source. They all have one source. And what's the source? It's the Father. And when you put this all together, you see grace like you've never seen it before. The Father chose you to have you as his child. And he's going to take you to glory. And the way he's done that is to send his eternal son as the perfect captain who will literally walk in our skin, suffer with, suffer for us so that he can bring us to glory. This is God's plan to dump his grace upon you and to lavish you with it forever. You know, it's, it's kind of fashionable in some circles to want to drive a wedge between the Father and the Son when it comes to the cross. Uh, I have an excellent book on the atonement, and, it, and in that book it quotes I guess you liberal scholars, I don't know what they are, but they, they call the cross divine child abuse. And so it's this idea that only a, a, cruel, a cruel God, a cruel father would make, make the son die on the cross. Or, or the other version of it is um, God the Father is so wretched and Jesus is so nice, you know, <laughs> that Jesus is trying to get God to change his mind by going to a cross and being like, look, this is what love can be or something like that. Let me just tell you, both of those views are foolishness, they're heresy, they're not biblical. 
the source of your salvation is the unified triune God. And the Father ordains salvation, and the Son is happy, happy for the joy set before him to accomplish your salvation, and the Spirit applies your salvation. It's the Spirit here telling you of the plan of the Father accomplished by the Son. There is one source choosing you and saving you is our glorious, gracious God. Savor that. Savor that. That he would see you, know what you need, and send the perfect captain. He's not saving you from a distance. No, he's come to be with you, to be like you, to get you, to take you where you need to go. It's the source of our salvation. Now the solidarity. Solidarity. I'm using that word to mean just a, a, close, a close sharing, a similarity, an, an intimate involve, involvement. Um, we see the solidarity of this grace in Hebrews 2.11, the grace of the incarnation. That is why. What is why? It's the source of salvation. That is why, the source of salvation, the He's going to send the sanctifier, and they're going to be sanctified, one source. That is why he, who's the he in verse 11? You need to know. It's Jesus in context. It's the voice of the one who sanctifies. That is why he is not ashamed. And friends, this may be my favorite verse. He's not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. I wonder, do you think it's true there's a longing in our hearts for um, this kind of dream of a big brother? Can anybody relate to that? If you are a big brother like me, you're like, I've never measured up to that dream. <laughs> but there's this longing in our hearts, someone to look up to who will love us, who will like us, who will protect us, who will help us. If you can resonate with that, I just want you to know Jesus is the true and ultimate version. This passage is saying Jesus has come in such solidarity with you that it's as if he puts his arm around you because he loves being your big brother. He's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. And so, of course, the author of Hebrews wants to back this up, especially in common ground with his audience. He's going to back it up from the Old Testament. He's going to show you, I'm not making anything up. He's going to tell them as they're tempted to go back to the Mosaic Law and to the Old Testament worship without Jesus, he's going to tell them over and over again, the Old Testament you want to go back to, the Old Testament has been telling you that the fulfillment is Jesus. I'm going to show you again, it was always about Jesus, in every way about Jesus. And so he gives us three reasons from the Old Testament that Jesus has this solidarity with his people. So the first one is verse 11, sorry, verse 12. He's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of your congregation, I will sing your praise. Well, this is, a, this is a reference from Psalm 22, and just as a reminder, 
The author of Hebrews and, and the author of Revelation did the same thing. He just throws out a quick reference to a passage of Scripture, and he intends that you know the context of that passage deeply and widely. And so he throws out a reference, and you're supposed to get the bigger picture, and that's a challenge for us. So we got we to gotta go back and kind of remember what's the bigger context Well, this is from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a psalm of David. Who's David? He's the king of Israel, through whom God's promised and ultimate king would come. And so here in Psalm 22, well, it's a lament. The king is suffering. He cries out to the Lord. And the suffering is deep and painful. He cries out to the Lord, and yet he trusts in the Lord in the midst of that suffering. It's a lament, trusting in the Lord through suffering. And as you read the psalm, it almost seems too big for David's life, and there's probably a reason for that. The New Testament writers continuously see Psalm 22 not only as David's voice, but ultimately as Jesus' voice. Psalm 22 ultimately is Jesus telling you the story of himself. The Gospel of Matthew is full of this. In fact, the whole event of the cross is just Psalm 22 over and over and over again. What did Jesus cry out from the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I don't think he was like reading his cue cards. Oh, I'm supposed to read Psalm 22 here. Uh, No, he cried that out in real agony. And... He was absolutely quoting from Psalm 22 because this is his psalm about himself. And so throughout the psalm, there's this lament and trust, lament and trust. Isn't that Jesus' life? Marginalized, persecuted, misunderstood, slandered. All these enemies, no one listening. Lament, trust, lament, trust. Well, it all changes in Psalm 22, verse 21. Look at this. Everything changes in this verse. Psalm 22, verse 21. Save me from the mouth of the lion. We've been lamenting for 21 verses. And now this next line, what does it say? You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I needed salvation. Now I'm rescued just instantly in one line. Well, you read the Bible forward and you're looking for Jesus and then you see him and then you come back and read it in light of Jesus and you know exactly what this verse is about. God did rescue Jesus when he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. And then in Psalm 22, 21, you've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen and the next thing he says, now who's talking here? Yes, David's talking here. First, ultimately, and according to the author of Hebrews, Jesus is talking. And he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters. He bought you as children of God through the cross. And then he tells of the Father to us, in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Where does he put you when he buys you? He puts you in the congregation, which is why every healthy Christian 
as a local church. We are in this together because we are his siblings. And moreover, he tells of the Father's name to us, and he praises the Father with us. Solidarity, closeness. Well, you see this in the resurrection. Mary's looking for Jesus. He's the first person to see him. He says, Mary, oh, it's him. Most likely she embraces him, and then he says, I got to go for a second. I'm going to go to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. He brings us in as children of God because he's the Son of God. And he's the perfect captain to do that because he took on flesh and suffered. He calls you brother, he calls you sister. Well, you get, then you get the author of Hebrews, and again, and again. So there's two more things he wants to say from the Old Testament about Jesus' solidarity with his people, okay? The next two things are in Hebrews 2.13, and the next verse, Hebrews 2, no, both in 13. But it's two references, and they're both to Isaiah 8. So if you go back and look up Psalm 22, I think a lot of these comparisons will be obvious to you. That's, that's easier to see as like a messianic text. Isaiah 8, it's, it's not quite as obvious. So you really do have to ponder, the con- what's the context of Isaiah 8 that has the, he- the author of Hebrews writing in this way? Because again, he could have chosen from a host of, of verses to make his point, but he chose this one. Well, if you go back and study Isaiah, right around there, those passages, uh, 7 to 9. Well, you, do you remember what Isaiah 7 is about? The prophet goes to the king and he says, hey, king, you need to quit being, putting all your hopes in your political strategies and in your idols. You need to trust the Lord. You need to trust Yahweh. I'll, and Yahweh is offering to give you a sign that he's going to come through for you. Well, the king is so idolatrous, he's like, I don't even want it. I won't even listen. And so the prophet says, well, you're going to get a sign anyway, and what a sign it's going to be. The virgin will bear a son, and you will call his name. Can anyone tell me? Emmanuel. God, what's it mean? With us. And of course, the original audience is thinking, oh, the presence of God will be with us, which is a wonderful and glorious thing, but they did not see it enough. Just how with us would God be? Then there's Isaiah 9. It's our favorite Christmas chapter. Unto us, a child is born. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of, what child is this? So Isaiah 8 is bookended by 7 and 9. This promise that God would come. Isaiah 8, and you see the prophet in this community trying to hold fast in the midst of dark, suffering times. The people are all about conspiracy theories regarding governments and plans and human power, and they're living in fear. And and the prophet, the the prophetical voice there says, seal up the teaching. God's people, we're going to hold this teaching, these promises from God. And what what are the promises from God? Emmanuel is the promise from God. God's going to come and be with us. And we're going to hold fast to these promises and wait in faithfulness for the Lord to act. And so, what was true, yes, true of Isaiah the author of Hebrews is saying, is most true about Jesus. Because in the context of a rebellious, disobedient nation where no one is listening to the prophet and everything is toil and pain, 
Jesus says, I will put my trust in him. And didn't the day of Isaiah look just like Jesus' day? The nation was rebellious. There was toil and suffering. Jesus' life was difficult. And so this text is saying Jesus, the captain, the founder, the perfecter, he went first. He knows what it's like to live in a day and an age where everything is falling apart, no one's listening to God's word, and it's a time of toil and suffering, and he made it through by trusting the promises of God. He did it first. And he did it for you. And because he did it, then he is able to say, the author of Hebrews is just saying, and again, it's the next line in Isaiah 8. Behold, I and the children God has given me. There's so much going on here. As God keeps his promises to his people in Isaiah 8, ultimately by sending Jesus Christ, God with us, the promises in Isaiah 8 come true as Jesus comes in the flesh and dies on a cross. Because look at how the offspring are one, Isaiah 53, 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Who's the him getting crushed? It's Jesus. And why is he getting crushed? For our sins, for the sins of others. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see what? His offspring. And he's like, wait, does Jesus have children? No, stop. It's not biological. This is how the children of God are brought near. It's through the one who was faithful under trial, trusting God's promises, who then died for the unfaithful. And that's how the children are saved. Incredible solidarity. Jesus walked in our presence, in our situation, with us, to be with us, to claim us, to take us where we are to go. He's the perfect captain, full of solidarity, and Jesus spoke this way. I have to show you John 6, 37. Look. Look at how Jesus talks. All that the Father gives me. Now, what's he talking about there? Is he talking about a kingdom? And you're thinking, uh, the, uh, what's he talking about? Uh, it's, a better question is, who's he talking about? All that the Father gives me, what will they do? They will come. So are you saying, Jesus, that the Father has given you a group of people? Yes. And what will this group of people do? Jesus says, they will come to me. Do, do you hear any doubt in there? Do you hear any, I'm really hoping, you know, I'm going to try really hard. No, they will come to me. And whoever comes to me, look at this promise, I'll never cast out. I'll keep you. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me came to do the Father's will, and this is the will of him who sent me. What's the Father's will for Jesus? 
Jesus says, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me. And what is it that the Father has given Jesus? It's the children. And he won't lose any of them. What's he going to do? I will raise it up on the last day. This is Hebrews 2 and John 6. He will bring the children to glory, verse 40. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. If you trust Christ, look at him. See him. See the solidarity he has taken upon himself with you to walk in human flesh as you do, to endure trial as you have and will, to suffer as you do more than you ever will, so as to be with you, to, have, to take hold of you, and to take you where you need to go. He will bring many sons to glory. There's one source of our salvation in the incarnation. It's the triune God. It's the plan of the Father accomplished by the Son, applied by the Spirit. And there's deep solidarity He's not ashamed to call you brother and sister. And here's where I want this to land on your heart. I hope you taste this. If we all tasted it, I think we'd we'd probably start weeping. Jesus Christ has shown you that because of who he is and what he's done, he's not at all ashamed of you. I could start crying as I think about this because deep in my heart, I know all these reasons. Well, heck, I'm ashamed of myself. I've not been enough. What category you want to talk about, just pick one. I've not been enough. I'm not enough. Why would you want me? And Jesus says, look, Look at how I've come close. Look at how I've come to be just like you. Look at how I went to the cross for you. It's as if he puts his arm around you and says, I am proud of you. I am proud to have you as my sister. You're my sister, and I feel for you, and I love you, and I will take you where you need to go. And he says, you're my brother. I love you. And I feel for you. I've come for you. I will take you where you need to go. Oh, what a captain. What a king. Source, solidarity, salvation, verses 14 to 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Let's get our doctrine right. How human was Jesus of Nazareth? How human is Jesus of Nazareth? Truly human. You remember the stories, right? They kind of mess with your head. There's a storm on the lake. Everybody's afraid they're going to die. What's Jesus doing? He's sleeping, and it messes with you. It really messes with them. It really messes with you. Because in one sense, you're like, well, if you're God, you should be like, towering because if you're sleeping what does that say about him don't make us too complicated right he was tired okay let me just tell you those in their divine nature okay jesus in his divine nature he doesn't get tired 
He doesn't need to sleep. There is no need or lack. But in human nature, man, we, all, we die if we don't sleep. Because we need, we are weak. And there he is in the boat sleeping because he needs. He's tired. And then he gets up and says to the storm, knock it off. And we're, ah! He's truly human. He likewise partook of the same things. He knows what it's like to be human in every way. Every way. He knows the fragility of it, the difficulty of it. And listen, he became human because in that way he could become killable. And he became killable so that he could die. Let's just make this clear for our little church this morning. Why did Jesus come? Some people say he came to be a, a political revolutionary. Some people say he came to be, a, he's just an example of love. Let's make it clear. He came, his first coming, ultimately he came to die on the cross for his people. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. We got to park here for a second. Wait, the devil has the power of death? It's easy to get the devil wrong, right? Um, on one side, some people think the devil is like the balance to God, just as powerful as God. And in that sense, he could be totally in charge of death. And God's like, how do I get this back? And no, that's not right. It's so not right. It's not biblical. The devil is a created, created being. He is on a leash and he will burn in hell forever. So no, let's not over, overstate the devil. On the other hand, in our day, we, we're not sure the devil exists. If he does, he's a cartoon character playing pool and drinking Bud Light, right? I mean, he's, he has red horns. And we don't take him nearly seriously enough in that sense. There is a spiritual, personal being, very powerful, very influential, and in a way he has the power of death. How does he have the power of death? Well, this is the best way, I think, to understand the passage. It's God who said the wages of sin is death. You reject the author of life, you rebel against him, you put him in your place, death is what you'll get. God kills people for sin. The, the question is, though, how did we get to this place where we loved sin? And you remember the story in the garden, right? Who came and tempted Adam and Eve? God's not good, his word's not true, let's replace him. That was the devil. That's his best work, tempting. And then to pile it on, you know what he does after he tempts you and gets you in his trap? Then he condemns you. Talk about a jerk, huh? Those are his two main works. He tempts you, he slanders God to you, he slanders God's word to you so that you won't trust it. And then when you bite that hook, he's gonna kick you while you're down, he's gonna condemn you, he's gonna say there's no hope for you, there's no way out for you. He wants your ruin. I think, I think the Apostle Paul says the same thing in a very different way. Look at 1, 1 Corinthians 15, 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is what? It's the law. So that's God's holy standard for what you're to love and how you're to live. Well, the devil has tempted you to break that law. And as Adam's children, you have done that happily, have you not? Many times and in many ways. So there's this power of death 
physical death, spiritual death. Moreover, the author says something really profound here. He says that we're all of us enslaved, lifelong slavery through the fear of death. Would you say that about yourself? You believe that about yourself? Your whole life, have you been a slave to the fear of death? I I, I would love to know what each one of you is thinking right here. As as I was pondering this, you know, sometimes we think, well, I'm not a, haven't you ever said, I'm not afraid to die. I'm kind of afraid of like the six months before that. (laughs) You say something like that, or or some would even say, no, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of death. But I want to ask that same person, are you anxious about anything today? Are you anxious about anything today? And what would you say? Tell the truth. You are all anxious today. And I would submit to you, those are the same things. It's the same thing. It's an echo of the same thing. Why are you anxious? You're anxious about losing something. A relationship, your health, your peace. You're anxious about losing something. And what's the ultimate picture of losing it all? Death. Death tells us, right, you will lose your health. You will lose all the money you've worked for. You will lose every relationship. I was talking with a friend the other day about the pain of seeing pictures of our kids when they were little. Can anybody relate if you have kids? Seeing pictures of your kids when they were little. And there's a bittersweetness. You're like, oh, they were cute and they were beautiful. And then I'm like, part of me goes, it's gone. It's gone. It's already gone. Where did it go? Was I there? I, I see in the picture I was there, but I, lo- I, I, I barely had it. No, I lost it. It's like oil slipping through my fingers. And you know what it tells me? I don't want to hear it. It tells me I'm dying. You're dying. I'm afraid to lose everything. The fear of death is about loss. It's also about being exposed. It's about being exposed. Am I significant? You know what death tells you? No. Will I be remembered? You know what death tells you? No. Am I important? You know what death says? No. Was I good enough? Death tells you, no. I'm afraid of losing, and I'm afraid of being exposed. I stumbled on this quote from Leo Tolstoy in a sermon I listened to, so don't think I'm a super academic, well-read, intellectual, that would be a lie, but I stumbled on this quote from Leo Tolstoy. I want you to feel it because I think he's, he's going to show you the fear of death. Leo Tolstoy, here's what he said. Something strange began to happen to me at age 50. I had a wife who loved me and whom I loved. I had a large estate, which without much effort on my part increased. My name was respected. I enjoyed physical strength. How many of you are like, sounds good. 
And yet I could not live because of death. The question which brought me to the verge of suicide sought an answer without which one cannot live. Is there any meaning in life that my inevitable death does not destroy? Today or tomorrow, death will come to those I love and then to me. Soon not only I will not exist, but eventually no one will exist who will remember anything I have written or done. Why then go on with the effort? What is it all for? What does it all lead to? What difference does it make whether or not I do this thing or that thing or nothing at all? So I could give no rational meaning to any single action or even to my whole life. But what was so surprising was how we can fail to see this. For a time, it's possible to live intoxicated with life. But as soon as one is sober, it is impossible not to see that life in the face of death is a fraud and a stupid fraud. And I say without Jesus, amen. How often I've been told, Tolstoy said, oh, you cannot understand the meaning of life, so don't think about it, just live. <laughs> I can no longer do that. Maybe after hearing all of this, you're still not a Christian and you insist you're not afraid of death. Well, at this point, I'll just say, you should be. You should be. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that, comes judgment. Who will save us from death? Can anyone save me from the fear of death that enslaves me? <laughs> Here's the glory. Death swallowed a bomb when it swallowed Jesus. He exploded out its back. And this is how he saved us. The law is fulfilled in his life. And so it no longer can condemn us because we are righteous in him. Sin has been paid for and is forgiven. Death is undone in his resurrection. And so the fear of death now can lose its sting. In Christ, who has come and shared such solidarity with us, lived our life, died our death, and has risen in resurrection for us, our ultimate story now is not that we lose everything. That's not my story. One with my Lord, we sang it. One with my Lord. What's the next line? We sang it. I cannot die. Yeah, I can, my physical body will die. It's just a doorway into real living. My story is no longer that I lose everything. Your story isn't either. Our story now is that through our captain, we gain everything. We gain everything. We don't lose everything. We gain everything. We have eternal life in a new world with new bodies, redeemed people in the face of our Lord. Mm. He's delivered us. And if you savor that, that can deflate some of your anxiety. Savor that, friends. Pop open the can of your deepest heart 
and hear the voices the mind of your heart is telling you in your greatest fears. Name them and let them meet Jesus who rose from the dead. We're no longer slaves to that fear. All right, that's the salvation. Sore solidarity salvation. Last one, service. The service, verses 16 to 18. Surely it's not angels he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be like, made like his brothers in every respect, so he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. So we see Jesus becoming a priest, the priest, and that just becomes the massive theme of the book. But he helps. It says uh, it's not angels that he helps. There's that just one more. He's showing the author, uh, the writers, right? Don't, don't be all up in angels. Jesus is better. And moreover, it's not angels he helps. And, and really, I think the better translation of that word help is lay hold of. And so I think he's talking in verse 16 again about the, about the incarnation. I think what he's saying is he didn't become an angel to help angels. What he's saying is he became human to help humans. He became an offspring of Abraham, literally, to help the offspring of Abraham spiritually. Who are the children of Abraham? Did you learn that song in Sunday school? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. What's the next line? I'm one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Galatians 3, 7, know then that it is those of faith who are the children of Abraham. God's people, God's children. And so to do this, he was made like us in every respect to be the perfect priest. You think of this idea of a priest. A priest makes a bridge, right, between God and humanity. And, and the perfect priest has to have a heart for both. He has to love and honor God, and he has to be full of love and mercy for the people. And so he serves God in bridging the gap between God and sinful, broken people. And of course, Jesus is the perfect high priest in the service of God in this way, and he helps us. Do you see, he's a merciful high priest. Do you know what his heart towards you is? It's mercy. His heart is inclined towards you, sees you in your situation, your need, is there for you, cares for you, and he's faithful. He's not a flake. He always comes through wisely, perfectly. And there's two ways he serves us here as a priest. And one deals with the, the, the penalty of sin, and the other deals with the power of sin. So look, it says he served us in that he's the propitiation. The propitiation. Everybody say that just to wake up real quick. Propitiation. It's a word we don't want to give away substitutionary atonement. God is a God of justice and a God of grace and mercy. And those two things he has decided will work together. And so in the cross, justice was done. God has never swept a sin under the rug as if to act like it didn't exist. He pours out wrath perfectly and justly on every sin. The question is, will you wear it or will your captain wear it for you? 
And if you've trusted Christ, you know that he has made propitiation in that, on the cross, the justice of God for every one of your personal sins. The debt was paid on the cross. Jesus took it. And so then, God can be just in punishing your sin and the justifier in declaring you perfect and sinless because the trade has been made. Jesus gave you his perfection as he took your sin and you are counted righteous and forgiven. It's been paid for. The penalty of sin is broken on the cross and Jesus serves, that in, serves us in that way as a priest. But also the power of sin. Look at this last verse. Verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted. Oh. Now, how many of you, you think of Jesus being tempted and you're like, yeah, he was God. I hear that. I hear that often. Yeah, he was God. Well, your theology's a little off because he was also human, truly human. And the text in Hebrews said Jesus suffered with loud cries. We think Temptation wasn't hard for him because he outlasted it. No, it was harder for him because we outlasted it. I mean, if you could, if you could say it like this, how hard does the devil have to work to get you to fall into temptation? He's like, yeah. They fell again. How hard, did Je- how hard did Satan work to tempt Jesus? He gave it everything he had. How was that for Jesus? It was suffering. It's suffering to be tempted. Aren't you glad to hear that? Jesus knows that. That's helping me. Sometimes you just feel like a dirty sinner when you're tempted. You realize, no, Jesus was tempted. And fighting temptation is hard. It's suffering. And Jesus knows it more than anyone. He knows what it's like to have desires Unmet. And you're telling me, wait, what? Jesus? Yes. What did he pray in the garden before the cross? Take this cup from me. But then he said, not my will, but yours be done. He knows. He knows. He doesn't just save you from the power of your sin. He does. But look, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so he does it as, again, as the perfect captain because he knows temptation and he's beaten temptation. You don't want help in your temptation from someone who's never beaten temptation. (laughs) This is hard. Let's go sin. (laughs) Jesus knows, and he's beaten it, and he died for your sins. So in his grace, in forgiving you, he's able now to help you. And help you in and with his people. And you know, as the, as, the writer, as, as the audience of Hebrews heard this, and they see the glories of Christ in his incarnation, the source, the solidarity, the salvation, the service, when they see him, they'd be able to say, you know what? I can make it through persecution. 
I can make it through suffering because I've got Jesus. Even better, he's got me. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for coming for us. Thank you for coming like us. So Lord, in this moment now, after we've heard your word, we just want to see and savor who you are. I pray for anyone in here who doesn't know you, Lord, that they will have seen you and what you've done, your invitation to them to believe, and they would. Lord, for those of us who do know you, I pray that our estimation of you would grow, our love for you would get deeper and sweeter as we see the grace of the Father for us in the Son, our captain, our brother, our king. We love you, Jesus, for what you've done. And we thank you that you love us even more. Help us live for your glory no matter the cost. We pray this in your perfect name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.